Hello, and welcome to Setting the Stage, Episode 4, Rick and Skyfe. Okay, uh, why don't you start off by introducing yourself and uh, who you are outside of uh, D&D. Okay, outside of D&D, <laughs> I'm a father of two, uh, living in Bridgewater, UK. Um, I do a lot of gaming. It's not just d and I'm involved with a lot of board games, a few skirmish games, that sort of thing. It's something I spend a lot of time doing. Um, I've recently started helping out with a uh, school, again, actually for D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a job outside of D&D at the moment. I actually am a paid DM. I had to leave my job, in, which was previously with Specsavers, uh, back in February for health reasons, unfortunately. I suffer with a <laughs> an autoimmune disorder which causes a fair amount of pain and fatigue, and you know this is now be- not only lets me enjoy being creative and doing what I love, but also means that I can look after myself a bit better, which is awesome, honestly. Yeah, that's great. There's actually, I think there's a couple of people that um, have become sort of professionals within the D and D community that have autoimmune disorders like that. Does seem to be the case. It's certainly a more popular thing now, isn't it? Yeah, I was thinking specifically of Rich Burlew, who does the Order of the Stick comic. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. realize. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the same um, condition because he's very tight-lipped about what it is. But um, I think people have put the pieces together, and it's some sort of autoimmune disorder that causes him pain where he can't reliably d- finish the comics. There's, there's a bit of a shame, because I must admit, I quite like his stuff. I've, got that, I've always been impressed by the quality of his work. Um, for myself, I'm fairly open about it. It's something called ankylosing spondylitis. It's a annoying, well, it's a bit more annoying. It's a particularly painful condition. It means that your vertebrae and some of your soft joints tend to fuse over time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not pleasant. Uh, I've been dealing with it unknowingly since I was 18, knowingly over the last, well, I think eight years now. It's it's the sort of thing I've had friends in the past where I've seen people struggle with certain conditions, and I think that's the same with many of us. When you encounter it um, in other people, you kind of think, oh, you know, it's not nice for you. You know, I, I do feel a little, a little sorry for you in some cases. But for yourself, it's just life. You make the most of what you can. You, you know, you still enjoy things. You just have to get over the the humps, you know. The, yes, exactly. Those yeah. That are rough. Yeah, like for me, like my parents divorced when I was young, and it's sort of like, well, uh, I don't even know what my life would be like if they'd stayed together. So. Yeah, that's it. Does change things for you, doesn't it? Uh, what got you started in D and D? Okay, so when I was five, I remember. My parents, after they put me to bed and my younger sisters, getting together with their friends on a weeknight, and they were gathered around rolling dice and telling stories. And this would have been 1984. And my favourite thing at that time was to crawl downstairs as quietly as I could, hide around the corner, and just open the door a crack so I could listen to what they were doing. And sometimes they caught me. Sometimes they didn't, and I'd listen to them for about an hour and a half, two hours. I do remember that. And after they caught me a few times, they let me come in and see what it was just so they get my curiosity out of the way. Only I kept pestering them. So eventually they agreed that I could make up a character, and I did. I remember a red box cleric with two hit points, 
because that's how we used to roll back in those days. Right. And yeah. I remember joining in on the the original Redbox D&D adventure, which was huge, at, in, like hugely important in my life because I stuck with it. By the time we moved to South Africa when I was eight, um, lived there for a year, my reading material was first edition D&D rule books. That was my preferred reading. Um, <laughs> it, it, I know, it's weird. I, I'm not going prefer- uh, to... One of my friends else. learned to read so he could read the player's handbook, the third edition one. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, I just never stopped. I remember going to my secondary school and asking if there was such a thing as a D&D club. This is way back before it was popular. Um, I was told, no, there isn't, but do you want to start one? So I did and started my first D&D club in my secondary school. And I believe they've still got one. I, yeah, cool. I've been playing pretty constantly ever since. I mean, I've played other things as well. I, I played, used to play chess for the county and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, I used to play Magic the Gathering on a... On, on a <laughs> Yes, yes, I play Space Hulk too. <laughs> yeah, I've, I play a few different things, but I've always keep coming back to role-playing games and D&D in particular, and Pathfinder, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, what's what's Space Hulk? Space Hulk. It's an old, it's an old Games Workshop game. Uh, kind of like an RPG light in some ways. You get Space Marines and you get to go around on a board killing uh, well, gene stealers, space monsters. And my son okay. has decided that his that's his current favourite game, so we play that whenever we can. Okay. So it's different than Warhammer 40k then? It's the same world. Um, I'm unsure. We, I think you'll find it was one of their very early releases. I think that from memory, 40k came out, 40K came out in about 83 or 84 originally, mm-hmm. uh, after they decided they weren't going to sell D&D anymore. And then Space Hulk came out in the late 80s, I think. So it is a pretty early one still. Um, okay. But yeah, we still pick it up and play whenever we can. All right, cool. Although I won't otherwise profess to liking most GW products, but that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they have their niche. Yes, I'll give you that. So that that's how you got into D&D, which sounds extremely cute with you, like, peeking in on your parents' <laughs> mind. I'll accept um, that, yeah. Uh, what, and I'm guessing for the, the DMing side, you got into that at your D&D club, is that right? Um, I started that when I was about nine. Second edition had just been released. I had a few friends at the time that were kind of curious about that sort of thing. So when I sort of put the idea forward, it wasn't that difficult to corner them into a couple of games. So yeah, I think I was probably DMing from nine. I can't remember doing much earlier. Okay. I used to talk generally um, one or two players at a time. It was difficult getting a larger group back in the day. Right. Yes. That's. I can imagine if you're starting from nothing at a school like that. Yeah. So in your your survey, you mentioned that you'd had lots of exposure to different official campaign settings. Um, Yeah, I'm guessing you were using those a lot at the start and then moved into designing your own world. Was there like a a process where it transitioned from being like Greyhawk into uh, your own campaign world? Or was it more just like you eventually just made a a solid switch at some point? I've dabbled with uh, Homebrew Worlds a lot of times over the years. Um, my f- I, I generally used to play in Forgotten Realms because that's what my friends used to like adventuring in, but my preferences were for things like Dark Sun and Spelljammer. But what I found was that the lore there wasn't... It wasn't quite what I wanted. It wasn't what I was looking for. So I started building my own worlds 
from time to time. They, and they last a couple of years and they'd go away. But more recently, I made a very I made a very sweet decision to switch to a world that suited me. I started the basics of it started back in about 2014 when I was uh, designing a almost kind of an offshoot called uh, I was calling Shift at the time. But this uh, Skyfe, as it's now called, is um, it was it came from the idea of wanting wanting more dungeons and more dragons. Honestly, mm-hmm. that's kind of the best way to describe it. D and D, there seems to be this. Dungeons have tra- changed a lot over the years. We don't tend to get much in the way of traditional dungeons the way I think of them anymore. Um, we certainly don't see very many dragons in the games. Not that I know that we ever really did, uh, outside of Dragonlance. But mm-hmm. I, I did want more. So um, Skyf is a very flat world. You can live on both sides. It is a disc, and the idea is that. The, there's a warren of caves and uh, sort of a labyrinth of tunnels beneath the surface. So that's your dungeons and they exist almost everywhere. And similarly, there are hundreds of different types of dragons. So the concept there is that wherever an egg hatches, it influences where what sort of dragon will come out. So dragons are almost part of your everyday life. They're not incredibly common, but I've got... Uh, one of the locations I designed quite early it has a baker who has a bread dragon. And that bread dragon curls up next to a bunch of um, a bunch of dough that's uh, proving. And his presence actually uh, makes that bread sort of prove faster and cook faster. Um, oh, cool. And they all have sort of similar sort of things. We've got thorn dragons and sand dragons that like to steal people's food. All the way up to battlefield dragons that uh, obviously their eggs have hatched upon a battlefield. And those are amongst the biggest dragons that I have on my world at the moment. They are big and very, very scary indeed. And they they can actually be big enough for people to ride. And their stories, I'm not going to say anything beyond that, of them actually sort of forming flights to act as a unit within a battle. Okay, so they're kind of like uh, almost just like different spirits or fairies that are everywhere. That sort of thing, yeah, actually, you're not far wrong. Um, I actually kind of base it on, uh, I think it's the Buddhist idea that everything has a spirit. Well, everything has a dragon in my world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it definitely sounds like that. Yeah, I was, I was, um, when I was reading your survey about this, I looked up the word for that. It's uh, animism, where Thank everything you. has a spirit. I, I've heard the term before, and I think, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's probably the exact word. Well done. Or dragonism, I guess, where everything has a dragon. <laughs> I th- I think I may steal that. Yes, well done. <laughs> That's mine. All right, go for it. Um, so uh, Skyf, how did you choose the name for the world? Okay, so Skyf, I went looking for a world, uh, a word or name that would work, and the whole concept of Skyf being a disc is it, massive. It's based on a sci-fi construct called an Alderson disc. Um, to give you an idea how big this disc is, and it is very hard to imagine, it's only about 1,200 miles thick, but the inner edge of that disc sits more or less where Mercury would within our solar system. The outer edge goes back about as far as Saturn. Now, obviously, that's absolutely enormous, but the shape is essentially a disc, like a CD almost, with what would be your sun bobbing down up and in the middle to create a day and night cycle. Um, I wanted a word that would be that meant disc or something similar, but really couldn't settle. So I didn't like the sound of disc. I didn't 
like the name I originally came up for it, which is simply The Girdle. It didn't feel right. doesn't sound right now either. Um, so I start, fun enough, I used Google Translate. I started plugging in disk to different languages and found what I wanted very, very sim- quickly. Um, I can't remember if it was Afrikaans or Swahili. I think it's Swahili. And it does literally mean just disk. And I've kept that as a naming convention for a lot of the areas I design. I use Swahili or Afrikaans almost interchangeably. Mm. And it creates a similar feel when you're coming up with different names. They, they, they fit within one another because they are based on the same language. And it's something I'd love to see more. You don't see a lot of African-inspired settings. And I'd like to get a few more bits in there. Not, not one particular culture, but it's just create a bit of awareness that there's other places out there, other cultures other than Western medieval basis for fancy. Yeah, that's cool. I've definitely used that that language idea for naming my own stuff as well. Mm, I find it works very well. I've got another friend who insists on using old, old, sorry, old Icelandic names um, when he ever does his design stuff and when he releases his products. And I that's where I got the idea from, honestly, is just keeping that that style the same then. Okay. Um, so I guess uh, going off of the name idea, but just with the size of the world, um... Did you try to come up with like a scientific explanation for why that structure wouldn't collapse on itself? Well, that's a good one. So I don't know if you if you're aware of an Alderson disk, but they are a theoretical uh, mega structure, as they call them, mega structures. Right. I've heard of Dyson spheres, where you you build a construct around the entirety of a star. So it sounds yeah. similar to that. It is, um, and there's a few specific things you need in place to make an Alderson disc work, and I've tried very hard to incorporate most of those ideas. Um, I'm not one for wanting necessarily to make this a sci-fi setting, but I do want it to be grounded in theoretical physics so that if someone asks me what's going on, I have some basis for my explanations. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the big issues with um, the disc, as I said, the sun sort of bobs up and down in the middle. If you had it sitting just uh, in the middle of the disc, you would just have this permanent shadow across everything. But where it bobs up and down and creates this um, day-night cycle, you have some semblance of a normal day. Um, obviously, where the there's no sort of rotation, there isn't any seasons, which has made a, an interesting calendar. Um, and it means that you don't have very much temperature variation or climate variation. So the climate and temperature are entirely dependent on where you live on the disk, how close you are and how far away from the sun. Um, If you can imagine on that scale, of course, if you're living too close to the sun or trying to live too close to the sun, it's just inhospitable, it's too hot. Mm -hmm. Similarly, too far away, but you end up with this sort of temperate zone, more or less, if you can imagine just inside of Venus, just inside of Mars, that sort of area. And I've calculated roughly the, just just for the point of trying to get across the concept of how big the, the disk is, uh, I've calculated that you've got roughly 160, I think it's 168 million billion Earths in terms of the land area. Mm-hmm. That's, that's quite a lot. <laughs> it's massive. So, because you need that sort of mass, in theory, to, to allow for gravity to sit within that plane, like halfway through the disk. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, everything gets pulled towards the middle, towards the sun. Right. And do stop me if I go too far with this explanation. No, no, I um, like it. So the idea of this is, obviously, you you've then can walk on both sides of the disk. 
as you get too far away, well into the realms where it's too cold, the disc would start breaking up around the edges. And over time, it will sort of disintegrate and come down to a, a an area which is, although unstable, still more or less together. Too close, of course, the pressure of everything and the heat means that essentially you're looking at rivers of molten metal and rock being um, sort of sitting pretty much everywhere. You've got a wall about 100 miles thick along the inner side of the weather disk is closest to the sun. And that's not to protect the disk from the effects of the sun, but in fact is just there to keep in the atmosphere, which would be another thing that you've got to worry about. Okay. Um, there's a whole bunch of things like that that I've had to try and incorporate within the the, the, the build of Skyf, essentially. It, okay, I don't have to. It's true. I can just say, hey, magic. But that's very much a trope of its own kind. And I'd like to try and, like I said, I want to have some sort of basis for my arguments and my uh, explanations. And by ground, grounding something in something that's been written around at least a bit, it gives me a starting point. Does that mean like when you're going towards the center of the disc, does it feel like going downhill because there's a little more mass in that direction? Not so much. What you'd probably find going, because the if you can imagine taking that disc and cutting it, please take a CD and cut it along halfway through the flat of it rather than through the middle of it, uh, through the mm-hmm. vertical side of it, yeah? Cut it along yeah. the horizontal, and it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. You will, you know, you'd find it feel more weighed down, but it wouldn't feel like you're going down on a slope the way it would if the gravity point was actually the sun by i mean the sun would certainly sort of pull you things pull you a little bit there but nowhere near as much as um perhaps a moon would around where you are around okay. sky there are no moons so it's one less thing to have to work it work out and such um it really i think the biggest thing about sky is just the scale of it um the you know i've talked about how many earths uh, equivalent on there obviously you can't design that sort of space. You can't just say, hey, here's a map of the whole space, because it would be impossible. It would be a lifetime's work just to map it, let alone actually populate it. Yeah, that almost um, seemed like an advantage of the setting, is that you, whenever you have a, a story you want to tell, you can just plug it, in. it over here. Yeah, And you can put it next to stuff you've already done, or nearby tra- places you can travel to, or you can have it entirely separate. You can put it on the other side of the disc, and you'd never know. I mean, that said, um, all of the adventures I'm planning, the everything that I am planning, only really applies to what I'm referring to as the top side of the disc. There are things on the other side, but it's impossible to interact with them at the moment because you've got 1,200 miles of catacombs and such. You've got a gravity shift in the middle, um, and you just simply can't get there at the moment. But again, plans are in place to introduce that at some point. I'd like to. I'd like to have it... If you're having all this space um, to make some use of it and to allow people to make use of it. So if anyone eventually wants to use Skype uh, in, as a setting, uh, they can simply place it anywhere they want to be on whichever side. Um, I want to have some sort of a general overview of what exists where, but it's a very general overview. Anyone can plug stuff in wherever they want to. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I had one more science question before we got more into like that. Oh, go for it, yeah. Setting stuff. Um, and that was how uh, how days worked. Are there actual days, or is the sun just sort of in mostly the same position? Okay, so you do have a day in the sense that the sun goes up and down, but it goes up and down. I, I kind of refer to it as eastwards, but sunwards, okay? 
So where, wherever the sun is in the middle, it, it stays there. It just bobs up and down. So it goes high enough to um, obviously generate a fair amount of heat across a larger area. And then it ducks back down under the horizon. So each day is always exactly 12 hours long. And it, I'm just keeping with the 24-hour day. Um, that led me on to think, though, how a calendar would work, especially with no seasons. Um, but a quick bit of math uh, gave me a few bits. And I've said, basically said that a lot of the worlds that come from... Uh, the, the populations come from because they don't call Skype isn't their home world for any of them. Um, so I ended up with most of them having a week similar to we do and season similar to we do, but saying on Skype they've adapted that to mean seven days is a week, seven weeks is a month, and seven months to a year. And you end up with something like 340 odd days, and then I've just All tagged right. on another week which is their transition week from one year to another where they tend to celebrate and such um but i've left scope for that. that's only my sort of my local calendar obviously it's an enormous space you have hundreds of thousands of races and civilizations so if one someone wanted to or if i ever wanted to create another calendar somewhere else there's scope for that and even in our existing world we've got lots of different calendars we use oh yeah so i Back to the science question, I guess I'm still not getting it. So is the disc like flipping and that's how the sun is going up and down or is it just kind of wobbling a little bit? No, there's no wobble. Basically, if you take your um, take your CD, CD is kind of the best way I can describe it. Imagine a ball mm-hmm. sitting in the middle of that CD in the sense where the hole is, yeah? Mm-hmm. And it literally just moves up and down. And as it goes up on your half, obviously it's going to get lighter and spread its light further. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. So the the sun is in the middle of the disk. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I was imagining the sun being the the disk existing on just one side of the solar system. Got you. Yeah, yeah, okay, I see that. No, that funny enough, this this is one of the science things that I first encountered when I first started reading up on Alderson disks. Um, It fascinated me. So... Yeah, because it's something that was interesting to me. I kind of hoped it'd be interesting to anyone else that was ended up playing on Skyf. Okay, all right. So the the sun is bobbing up and down in the the middle of the disk. Yeah. So it provides twelve hours of light for one half, and then goes and does twelve hours of light for the other. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I kind of imagine it not being that different to being on. So imagine being in England. Um. Uh, somewhere in the autumn that that transition point where we go to a 12-hour day that's the sort of thing you're going to see except of course the sun doesn't go across the sky as we think of it it just bobs up and down on what we consider to be east in that setting because mm-hmm. the directions are all a bit screwy obviously right, there's right. no magnetic north or south um so i've had to come up with some alternatives really i guess <laughs> Yeah, you could have like a large magnet deposit mountain or something like that. Um, no, I've not even done that actually. So compasses wouldn't really work except to show east rather than north, because um, that's there'd be a slightly greater pull from that direction. I, I, I imagine this is all sort of headcanon, really. But mm. I see the the sun or the orb, as they tend to call it, as being your east. North would be clockwise, south would be counterclockwise, and west is away from the sun. Uh, and you might use uh, things like Widdishans as uh, another option if you're looking at uh, other descriptions for south. Or, yeah. Or sunwise if you go north, yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. I, I think I'm satisfied on the, the science explanation. <laughs> Come back to it if you need to, mate. 
um, maybe you don't want to get into this because you have your your players might be listening, but uh, there's two sides. You mentioned you've mostly been working on the the top side. Is there a distinct difference between the top side and the bottom side for what you're planning for it? I don't mind putting this out there because um, although we are um, obviously talking about different campaigns and such, I think I've got three campaigns set on Skype right now. Uh, the main thing about the other side, the main difference, is that rather than having relatively humanoid races, our traditional fancy races, the flip side is populated almost entirely by dragons. When ah. this world was constructed, they used a particular element, which I'm calling Magistum, to create it and to, create, uh, to enable this movement of matter to, to build such a massive thing. And traces of Magistum have got stuck within the world. This is tiny little crystals. Dragons are drawn to Magistum. So over the last few hundred years since this world was created, dragons have slowly come in and they've primarily populated the flip side. There's still plenty on the top side, but the numbers on the flip side are huge by comparison. All right. And and yeah, that will come into the story at some point for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, so it was uh, so Skyfe was constructed. Do you want to talk a little bit about the the architects and what they're like? Okay. So based on that that element, Magistum, you've got a small number of beings that have come to become known as Magisters that are able to control Magistum. They are ones in billions. Now, as our story begins, the idea is that there is a galactic alliance. I'm, like, I'm keeping mostly away from sci-fi stuff, but the, the history is very much a sci-fi thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this galactic alliance became aware of a hole in space. What we'd call a black hole, of course. Um, and it started growing. And they became concerned about it and tasked these magisters with doing something about it because it was actually eating up matter within their own galaxy and growing larger at quite an alarming rate. So these magisters very quickly determined that it wasn't something they could stop. It was a force of nature beyond even their massive, immense abilities. So they decided instead of trying to stop it, they would simply try to save as many people as they could and hope it stopped growing. So they started taking matter at its base level from the areas closest to the hole, partly to try and starve it. And partly to create this new world for the beings living in sort of a danger zone near it to relocate to. And this would have taken hundreds of years, at least. Um, and they, they essentially just broke apart planets, asteroids, anything that this hole would have been devouring. And brought it here to where they decided to build this nascent world that eventually became known as Skyfe. Um, they created it essentially from the ground up, they created a structure for it. And then they create some simile of the lands that other creatures might be more familiar with. So you've got terrain uh, and even life being relatively naturally generated, but just at a much faster rate. The trouble is, all this time, the hole is growing and continuing to eat anything nearby. So they end up having to obviously expand the area that they were taking matter from and then again and again. And all the time, this hole is continuing to grow. So these magisters, they eventually take away everything, absolutely everything 
and use it all to build Skyf. Now it's a you know a massive contract. You need this matter from somewhere. And when they get to the point where the whole grows to a point where it threatens a world, they open portals across that world and welcome them all to Skyf. Um, the idea is just open portals you can come through. And these magisters, they they move everything living. So you've got intelligent races. Um, you've got less intelligent races. You've got lots of animals. And you've got eventually monsters coming through as well. They don't care. They're just there to save as much life as they can. Now, obviously, not all races would have trusted these magisters. So some would have stayed and eventually faced oblivion. But they save a huge number. And they bring them across and they... Um, they put them in different places across Skyf so that they can uh, de- sort of redevelop. They're not a- the races when they come; they're not allowed to bring anything inorganic. They're not able to bring anything inorganic across. So even though some of these civilizations would have had relatively high tech, they're starting again, and they've got a certain amount of knowledge, but very little way to preserve that knowledge beyond trying to keep some writings together. Right. Yeah, I suppose. Um, well, would you could bring a book through, but would the the writing on it come through i guess this is part of the problem so some of them would have been trying to preserve uh, writings in ways that just didn't survive the passage uh, you end up with a lot of problems though because obviously you're bringing the, all these different races across most of them don't know each other and they all want to gain some sort of advantage over each other they're all fighting for the resources that are in place so shortly after all these worlds start coming over you start getting wars. So they're all fighting over what they want. And then, you know, the other problem, these magisters, although, I mean, bear in mind, magisters aren't a singular race themselves. They are from a variety of different races. And although they're used to working with one another, they don't all have the same goal, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, some will pick favourites. So some, for example, will bring races through and say, right, for example, we've got dwarves. I like dwarves, that's fine. So I'm going to put all the dwarves here where I know there's a load of ore and things like that. It's great. But what happens if they get there and find that some other magister has brought across another race, maybe a bunch of orcs or even elves, and given them that space first? The other magister can't just move the others without basically obliterating them. So the other race is there, and they've kind of got to find their own way now. They've kind of they're going to have to work out what they're doing. Some of them will end up near friendly races, be able to trade, but most of the time there's other races that they're almost immediately at loggerheads with. So we've a lot of conflict. And despite the fact that the magisters are bringing the races here, they're not they're not directly involving themselves with anything that happens on Sky initially. So these wars happen without the magisters stepping in. There's obviously a lot of bloodshed and a lot of these uh, civilizations, these races that come across. By the time our story properly begins, they only exist in stories and through artifacts that have somehow survived longer than the race themselves. Okay, that was going to be one of my questions, was if the, the magisters were involved in the the care for the um i'm comparing it to kind of like a nature preserve or a zoo <laughs> that's that's the first time i've heard that comparison but it's not necessarily a bad one the thing is that the magisters when they were building skyfe they had to step away from the alliance that they were otherwise um helping to preserve mm-hmm. and during this time when skyfe was being built and they were obviously very much focused on this task the alliance that they were part of was breaking apart they had their own losses to cope with, and no one can really conceive of how much, how great their losses are. The Magisters, due to their control over Magistum, live for eons. But everything that they cared about before this happened has now gone. 
they've you know there might be some races that survive as rigid part of that alliance but they don't any longer resemble beings that the the, the magisters themselves know so what's yes. happened is over the last few hundred years the magisters have started to step in again now they've recovered and rested and uh, essentially moved on a little from their losses some of them are worshipped in place of gods uh, which is sort of a core mechanic in mine there aren't in, in on sky there are gods so when the beings when they everyone came across whatever gods existed now don't and um, what you're left with is the magisters who do hear they're aware of certain prayers making it their way to them and in some cases choose to reward those prayers with powers which grant us our clerics they're not the same as gods so they don't have particular portfolios um there's one particular magister that has been developed perhaps more than others his name is thath and he brought a lot of dwarves across to the location i tend to use for uh, adventures and Thath is known to to favour those dwarves in a number of ways, but it doesn't always grow and give them powers over earth or mountains. If in your heart you're, you you feel like this this magister is more of a a being of energy, um, of power, then maybe he'll grant you thunder or lightning magic. But okay. it's only the pure-blooded who get rewarded with these powers. Uh, so so. Uh, what what would um, what is pure blooded then? Okay, so purity is a concept that I've developed to be sort of one of the core mechanics of Skyfe. Um, it stems from an old Dragon magazine, honestly. Um, it gave me an idea several years ago, and I've never really used it until now. The concept is that there is a level of purity in everything; it's an inherent inherent in their nature. But with living beings, it actually stems back to how pure they, how pure their bloodline is, going back to the first of their race to come to Skyfe. So any time that they are uh, having kids and such, as long as they are being able to trace their heritage back to the original refugees, as we call them, that came through the portals to Skyfe, then they remain pure-blooded. But if they start mixing with other races, those children are no longer. Um, of pure blood and for whatever reason it's currently unknown uh, the magisters do not grant any abilities at all to someone who is not pure-blooded and that's got a, a few um, consequences to it so it means that most people think because clerics obviously have healing magic and they're the most powerful form of healing that we have available uh, they're kind of held as a higher person a little bit like i tend to use english feudalism as a, an example nobles have this sort of inherent right they're inherently better because their their bloodline goes back several hundred years right um it's the same with the pure-blooded so the pure-blooded tend to rise to become noble houses they tend to be the rulers of a city or region and they're always held to be better so if you have a um someone who's essentially a beggar on the street and for whatever reason, they become gifted with clerical abilities, then they must be pure blood and therefore they shouldn't be a beggar. We, we, they need to be elevated. Um, and the reverse is also true. If you have a noble house that um, has perhaps had clerics in the past, and we, yeah, they've proven that, they know this, but there is the, there is the reverse of pure, there's the impure. Um, 
and the mixing of bloods leads to uh, sorcerous abilities. Um, and you can't have sorcerous abilities if you're pure. So if a, a noble house that's claiming it's pure suddenly has a sorcerer arrive in its midst, they go to quite quite great lengths to hide that from everyone because they don't want to be seen as being anything other than pure. Um, and sometimes they could hide that for several generations, but it tends to come don't out want in anybody the end. to know that they have witches. Exactly, exactly the reference. Yeah, exactly. Um, so consequently, obviously, you end up with uh, almost like a lower class, if you were, the, these people who don't like... Um, who, who aren't always liked across the board, the the impure, the sorceress. Um, but there is this recognition that sooner or later, these clerics, there's a limit to how many you'll have them. You can't keep lines pure forever. Um, so in some ways, they're even more, it's seen as even more important that the pure stay pure. Um, so I have a question about that. So uh, let's say you have like a, a human and uh, an orc, um, and they come, from different planets, so then they they have a child, and the the half orc child they have is impure. Yes. Um, but uh, if you have a human and an orc, and they came from the same planet, and they have a child, that child would be pure. Is that? They would still be impure. It has to be not just the same homeworlds, but the same race as well. Okay. Obviously, over time, this will mean the pure may end up developing certain problems in the same way that we used to have in our nobility and royalty here. Yes. I guess it's a larger starting population, but yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Uh, okay, so that means then if there's two humans that are from different worlds, uh, their child would be impure? Correct, yeah. Which is why okay. these noble houses obviously don't always know that they may not be pure anymore. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, pure people are the only ones that can use cleric magic, and impure people are the only ones that can use sorcerous magic. Is yes. there any other source of magic, or is it just those two? So you've still got the other traditional forms of magic. You've still got um, uh, things like sorcerers. Sorry, you're sorcerers. You've still got wizards and others that learn through books and things like that. I haven't as yet developed any other new forms of magic, but that is something that might logically come in time. Yeah, it seems like Artificer would work pretty well with all the sort of sci-fi background to the Oh, alchemy definitely exists, definitely. And um, that's definitely something that has a magical base. I'm keeping otherwise the traditional sort of D&D and indeed Pathfinder options open. It's only specifically the clerics and sorcerers I'm restricting in any way. Okay. So uh, I was just thinking of bards are often I kind of lump them in with sorcerers for how their magic works, but yeah, I guess that could easily be be different. Yeah, um, the way I see it is they're still kind of book learning. It's just that they show it, they um, produce that magic in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's still, yeah, um, a song's no really no real difference from a an arcane utterance. It's still again in kind of headcanon, I guess. It's still a way of expressing that magic and forcing it to come into being. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I definitely see that. Um, what about uh, paladins? I know those have changed in 5th edition, but in the previous ones, they were basically just cleric slash fighter. I think if, we, if you're using an earlier edition on Skyfe, I would probably actually elevate them further than the cleric. So they would be the real, the, the truly pure ones, Only the, well, not just pure, but pure of heart could become paladins in my own head. Um, but certainly with the current changes within the more modern rule sets, 
you don't need to link them to gods and therefore I wouldn't worry about that. Um, similarly, you've got druids, of course, that pull their power from the land rather than gods um, and range, of course, the same way. Uh, so again, I don't restrict those. They're just pulling their magic from a different place still, I guess. Okay, yeah. Um, and I guess the the last big one would be warlocks, where, uh, I mean, that's yes. got the, the pact thing, but I, I've never felt like you needed to really embrace that part of the the lore for warlocks, they work just fine without having a, a specific being they're linked to. Well, funny enough, I do have a warlock in the podcast that's running. And oh, cool. we've had to, I've actually had to story that and come up with an answer because it was being asked. You know, that's the way these things sort of progress. And the, the concept comes from purity still. So it's not just bloodlines that have purity. It is everything. So there's a pure form of everything. Uh, including, in this case, a pure form of shadow. Now, this sort of comes from the elemental planes, in a sense. So the elemental planes, of course, fire, earth, air, water, we have this idea that there are pure forms of those that exist elsewhere. Well, shadow, light, war, love, there are pure forms of all these two, emotions and concepts. So the warlock, in this case, has chosen to take up uh, as a patron from the plane of shadow, uh, and these still functions as otherworldly beings the same way other war- warlock patrons would. Um, so we are able to story that in that way. And as other things come up, other stories with planes come up, then I'll fill those out as we go. At the moment, these planes are relatively small. They've they've sort of come across attached to matter that's come over from different places, but they're coalescing together um, in the same way that the Fey realm is as well. Um, so they're over time they'll become larger and stronger and perhaps more relevant. Okay. I was thinking that the the pure versus impure for the objects was more like Plato's like ideal forms. Have you learned about that? Yeah. Um. I originally when I was thinking about Skyf, that's more or less how I was going to think about it. Like you could get these pure forms, and you can actually take matter from these planes and mold it. So, again, using the Shadow Realm as an example, you can pull matter from the Shadow Plane, just pure shadow, and you can then forge it into other shapes and forms. So you could have a blade made of shadow. You could have armor made of light. Um, You could have a torch having stuck a piece of pure fire to it that won't necessarily consume the wood because the fire exists without needing fuel. Um, so all these things actually is it and actually that's the that was the original inspiration the dragon magazine article was about these weapons of emotion and things like that as far as i remember uh, 180 or so something in that region and the these these items obviously when they when you if you are able to forge them if you are able to to work them and it's not an easy process so not everyone can would be relatively powerful compared to the normal material forms that are made up of iron and such that you'd, you'd normally work with. Okay. Um, and then would they have some other magic power associated with the the element that was used to create them? Yeah, and it's always associated with that element. So you, you, know, you couldn't ever have, for example, a shadowy thing that was just producing water for no reason because it's not relevant. It's not doesn't go with it. But if you do have a shadow item, uh, one thing I've already put into place is that a shadowy item does produce a small amount of light. 
because without light, there is no shadow. Okay. So it just produce light on like one side of the item or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that then creates a shadow that you can then do something with. Excellent. Okay, I think that's enough about like the, the broader parts of the world. I wanted to talk a little bit more about... like a, You said you're running three campaigns right now? That's right, yeah. Are they... So uh, I know some DMs do this where if they're running multiple campaigns, they're actually all the same campaign instead of having yeah. different ones for different people. I absolutely do that. Um, I've got one campaign, which is a Pathfinder campaign. It's been running now for, uh, I think, a total of six years, maybe, no, seven years at least, where they are all adventuring in the same area and their actions affect the next sort of part of the campaign. This is similar to that. Um, when I first designed Skyf, I, I I created a, a base area that I thought was interesting. You've got three countries that are sitting in the middle of a very large island inside of a larger sea. Um, might be worth noting that on Skyf, a sea has a bottom layer to it, whereas an ocean actually goes all the way through to the other side. Um, so that, that's another potential route through at some point. Okay. Um, so on this island, you've got, um, let me think, you've got Kispala, which is a sort of Spanish-derived uh, culture led by a king. You've got Festia, which is a an elven-dominated nation. And the other side of that, you've got Stoplut, and Stoplut is an area largely dominated by a variety of different goblinoids. Now, obviously... They have gone through times of peace and they are sort of sitting uh, rather restlessly next to each other. The the citizens of Stoplut are, they've been working on Festia, the elves, who they actually share a border with. Basically, Festia sits in between the other two on this island. Okay. And there has been a change of king in recent times in Stoplut and he's been... Uh, driving, whipping up the, uh, the will of the people to resume war upon Festia. Festia is the weakest of the three nations. They've had to turn to the citizens of Kispala for help. So the the king has agreed to assist, but his price is that the pure-blooded queen of Festia must become his bride. Um, because of what that would mean for her future descendants, the king already has two sons. It means that the the queen will only then of course produce uh impure uh descendants um and that means although she's willing to make that sacrifice for her people to protect them the elves themselves who live there a lot of them at least are very very unhappy with this and there's now rumors of resistance movement actually trying to break up this alliance so that she's not forced to do this um in the meantime, the Kispalans are mobilizing their armies, getting ready to um, sit on the Festian border. There's plans to actually unite the countries formally so that they become one. Um, and the, I mean, all the time, the king in Stoplut is still stirring up trouble and you're starting to see border raids happening. So that's one area. That was the first area I sort of produced for it. And I'm really happy with how the, the politics actually come down to sort of the grassroots level there. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. The party essentially is going across. They had a, a starting mission where they went to a village for to help them out, essentially, as a patrol. That 
that's when they got a sniff that there might be a resistance in place. They then moved across. They were asked to go to Stoplatte, well, for a reason. And they've ended up meeting someone who claims that he might be able to stop the orcs from becoming more warlike. He might be able to uh, make them slightly more peaceful again. They don't know how he's perhaps so uh, able to do that, but he's making that claim and they're believing him at the moment. And so now they're trying to try and neutralize this resistance, which is one of the other things promoting a war from the Festian side. Um, but that area is actually separate to the, what's become the main area. The main area is, um, I, I call it the Kashomataka region. It's based around like a ra- rather large desert. Okay. And next to this desert, you've got a river that runs alongside it, uh, along both sides on the southwestern side. There's mountains just beyond that. And next to these mountains, next to this river, there's a, a huge crack in the earth. And inside that crack is Carbrug. And Carbrug is a city that dwells halfway down this crevice. There's a bridge that goes across, across it, spanning the two sides. There's a large freshwater lake down below that's got a huge different population of uh, different fish. And Carbrug is the largest city in this area. It, there's a, I've ended up developing this area a lot because uh, I was contacted by the podcast to, to run a game and I su- suggested this area, they were all for it. But I realised I didn't have a lot of lore, so I've hand, ended up having to about 15,000 words of lore on this area. Um, we did an AMA on this, so what I thought was an interesting amount of lore ended up not being enough. So they were asking me about banking systems, um, about schooling oh. systems, and I embraced that. Rather than saying, well, we don't need to go to that level of detail, I could have done that and they would have gone, yeah, that's fine. But I find myself being inspired when people ask me about things. I I enjoy asking and being asked questions I don't know the answer to immediately because you've got to then come up with that. We don't have to, but I prefer to. So I went through and answered the question. So that's developed into there being a, rather than being a banking system, for example, you've got the the guild of gem cutters they control the prices of gems so they control the uh, that are often used to like, transport huge amounts of money right so they control the economy to a large degree so they've got a lot more power than perhaps they should do um you've got various other city states in this area and carbrook now trades with a lot of them so they've got underground passages canals really that lead from this underwater this underground uh, lake and they snake down through to uh, to other locations and the really good thing about this is led to some overland um, stories where people can travel to these other cities and go do things there. Um, I've created maps for all this region now. And there's also stories going underground. There's a guild of watermen that uh, they are responsible for keeping these passages clear and also building new ones to other cities to increase their trade network. So I've got another party that goes down underground to clear out new passages and to, or to make old ones safe. Um, and who knows what you're going to find under this place? You know, they, these huge mines and that that uh, give Carburg a huge amount of wealth. But in the deep dark, things do live. Right. And that then leads to the party having to discuss, sort of discover what exactly is down there. Well, I was thinking of uh, sort of a political implication of the, the Gem Cutters Guild controlling finances is they'd want to prevent a sort of fiat currency from coming up where people are just trading IOUs instead of gems. Well, so they yeah, almost I mean, want to encourage distrust of other merchants. 
you're definitely touching on things that I have made notes for to to examine further later. Um, there is the, like Harburg essentially has three trade networks, um, and this sort of plays into this. So underground, you've got these canals, and they do lead to other places. The river that Carbrook sits alongside is also a huge sort of trading option, but you get these massive um, sort of caravans that go down on the river. They basically buy every boat they can and go down the river, safety in numbers. And they go up to another city called um, Kiadia, which is to the northwest, and branch out from there. In every other direction, there's problems with trade. You've got deserts that, although do have trade routes, are difficult. You've got mountains to the southwest. To the southeast, you've got open plains, which would be ideal, but they're largely uninhabited. And it's when you, only when you hit start of, um, a very swampy area that you start hitting more uh, settlements and such. Mm-hmm. The other option is by airship. So airships are really uncommon. They're, they're very, very rare. So they command very high prices, which means the Gilded Gem Cutters obviously can control those to a larger degree and stop there being more trade that way. So the con- the concept there is that they, they, is if you can restrict trade to the east especially, which is where a lot of the map sort of progresses through, um, they can sort of strangle any attempt to create other currencies and such. And they don't really care if there's a local currency in a way because you still have to trade up to a gem. But if there's anything resembling a bank that might form, that would be a big threat, and they deal with that very, very quickly. Okay. Um, so the your players in that region, they're they're not involved in that finance stuff. That's just stuff that you've got got notes on because they asked about it. Um, I will, what? Yeah, I've got some notes on it, um, and they they are aware of it. When they found out that came up in the AMA, and it prompted some discussion on how that might uh, be. Be, be affect the, like the, the economy and such it's not so i went into a huge amount but i made notes on this because it is definitely an area that will cause some conflicts down the line and produce some storylines that i want to explore okay um so what are your players uh doing in that region at the moment is there like an overarching plot or are they more just uh exploring the underdark and whatever's down there and finding finding what they find so, so yeah one group is basically doing that they these groups have started relatively recently. Skyf is uh, re- something that only really came up and was completed to, for play last year. Okay. Um, so one group is going down, clearing out the tunnels, and they don't know it yet, but they've already encountered some clues as to other things they might find. And they might pick up on that from me saying this, and I don't mind if they do. That's fine. Um, the other group, I can't say too much about, partly because it is the podcast. Um, and I don't want the players to know about it, but I also want them to keep that story intact for them. But mm, what yeah, I can say is that they are involved in a big storyline, and it's a big storyline that will affect every group playing in Sky for this when they get to it. And the mission they've been given, uh, being already quite successful adventurers, they're level five, they've got a certain amount of fame, is to go and essentially retrieve a book from an old library. Um, the people that currently live in Carbrook once lived in this other place. And during the settlement wars after the refugees came to Skyfe, they were forced away from ultimately, and they left behind this library. Now, when I say library, I'm thinking more of the Library of Alexandria. It wasn't just scrolls and books. It was all sorts of artifacts. So um, you, you'd, you'd have paintings, you'd, ha- you'd have wondrous things there. But 
they've had to leave a lot of that behind and it was looted and whatever so there's not a lot there but they're hoping that there's some sort of scroll which will clarify a prophecy for them which has come into their possession and they're having to travel through and they're going to explore various um things on the way there and hopefully they'll find this library and they'll find out what resides within it and what this prophecy then means for for Skyf. Uh, it's going to depend a little bit on what they do as to what I reveal. So I've got to be a bit careful there. But the fun thing for me is being able to explore these different city states, which are all very unique and be able to introduce different elements to the game that we've talked about, but haven't yet seen things like the airships that they know exist, but we haven't yet interacted with. Apart from that, I can't say a lot on it, though, because I think in either case it would spoil the story for the people uh, beyond that point. Gotcha. Unfortunately. Um, so it's a so that's a podcast series, so you're recording those and, and uploading the, the sessions? Yeah, so we've only recorded session one. Um, we've been planning this since June. I think I can say that safely at this point. It's an existing group that I was already in contact with. They We'd... I basically supplied a little bit of help or inspiration with a couple of problems they'd had. And when they parted with the DM that they had working with them, um, actually quite careful how I phrase that, they came to me and said, look, would you be interested in doing this? And I'd only a couple of weeks beforehand decided I was going to do this professional GM thing. Um, so we had a talk, and I decided that, yeah, it'd be a really fun thing. I was very excited when they asked me, honestly. I thought it was a fantastic thing. Um, and these guys, they've got their own ongoing podcast that are still running, but we're hoping that this will come in around probably the end of November. might be pushed back a little now. Um, session two records in two days. That's our sort of recording sessions. And we're hoping this is going to go to at least sort of eight episodes for this arc um, that once, once editing's finished and we'll have to see what goes from there it's i can't say that i'm going to be carrying on long term with them i think it'd be really fun to do that uh certainly my first experience with a podcast like this um but obviously that's partly up to them really and to also see how well it's received okay um what's is it is it released does it have a name can we can we talk it, about that at least it's not released yet um it's the dungeons and dragons uk podcast that's what they call themselves um they're based here in the uk which is a fantastic thing makes it a bit easier for me in terms of uh timing of things <laughs> yes. um and yeah they've got their own sort of quite long running series um so you probably need to google up that name you can find them on youtube or anchor or spotify easily enough they're i would say fairly successful they've got about two and a half thousand people listening to them i believe which is pretty good numbers for a niche hobby i believe um and I'm really excited to just be giving this a go. Um, if all goes well, maybe we can carry on and do a bit more with it. Their own series, I think, currently running to about 60 episodes. So they've got quite a lot for people to listen to if uh, people are interested. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and find a link to put in the episode notes for this episode. So how did you get... I mean, you explained like the, the motivation for moving to professional DMing, but how did you actually like find groups? Did you already have contacts with the community or did you like put up an ad okay so i this was partly luck when i left my previous job in retail i had in mind honestly 
I, honestly, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I've done some design work within D&D. Uh, I've got a couple of companies that I worked with a few times. Um, I've done not just design work, but some proofreading work for some other companies as well. And I was hoping to be able to pick up some more of that line of work. After a couple of months, I'd only had a limited amount come my way. Things are a bit more difficult this year um, because obviously people are coming out of COVID and money's a bit tighter for everyone. So when a friend basically said to me, hey, well, he came out pretty much out of the blue. It's an old friend who used to travel down um, about 45 minutes just drive to drive down to play, which is quite a distance here in the UK when you're arranging this sort of thing. And he said, you know, would it be possible to arrange a game? I'll, I'll happily pay you to run it. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I've always had perhaps a beer in my bonnet about paid DMing. I've always had struggled with the sort of moral side of it because um, to to explain that i mean might be the wrong word <coughs> excuse me um i i've heard about paid dming for sort of 30 years now um start off as a very rare thing and lots of people seem to be trying it out now it's almost a glut in the market and i always had this problem with having unpaid groups for friends and then also separating that and having paid groups um but it was as needs must, and I, I accepted uh, pretty quickly. We arranged a game, played it through in person, which was wonderful, and then talked about arranging another online game to follow on. I thought, well, you know what? I, it's not like it's a huge problem, I think. Um, I got my own head sorted on how I would ar- arrange things. Basically, I went to each of my unpaid groups and said, you know what? Don't worry about it. You're not going to pay. Um, I'll just start taking on other groups as and when they come up. And then, of course, started looking around to see if there were other groups that might be interested. Um, there wasn't a lot, especially initially. Um, I had the podcast contact me, which was lovely. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe that will essentially act as advertising in the end, which I'm hoping that it will uh, certainly assist with. That first group, unfortunately, petered out within two sessions online, which was disappointing. Uh, I put a lot yeah, of work into... Yeah, it you're not wrong there i mean i i I don't think anything ill of them it's just really really bad luck the it was one of those groups that we just didn't gel i think perhaps there's a couple of people who weren't able to make it after all and despite the fact that it was a setting that i really like it was going back to dark sun it just wasn't something i could invest a lot of time in if we had two people and one of those couldn't make it sometimes yeah i see that Hopefully we'll I'll be able to talk with them at some point and we'll get that running again. But that was difficult. Um, but I've ended up with uh, I've now got two groups running. Uh, one runs on excuse me on a Saturday night, which is lovely. It's in person. Pathfinder two pack campaign, great fun. Um, and same system for a Monday daytime game, which was an odd time, but just happened to come out. And I'm finding as you're continuing as as you tend to do these things, there's interest from other groups. Um today um I got very lucky. A friend of mine um supported my, my decision to this very early on. She said, Look, my son's very interested. Um can we book it in for October? This was back in May, I think she offered this. I said, Yeah. Um and today was the day. Uh, it was my first birthday when I've developed um very much a bespoke uh, scenario, which perhaps might might possibly go out through one of the uh, groups I know might get published. Um and it's called the Ogre, Ogre's Underpants. And the story is, essentially, you've got a bunch of goblins that hear about 
uh, an ogre that has some magic underpants that he hasn't taken off for two years. Um, and you can imagine oh, what they're lovely. like. <laughs> and they decide that they're going to, to steal them uh, in order to try and uh, help their goblin village against these ogres that have come to live nearby. Uh, and they absolutely loved it. The feedback I've had today is amazing. Um, I've done a few other things um, that have sort of come into this. Uh, I've helped, I'm helping out with a local school with a D&D club. Um, and I've done, I've, I've sort of talked about trying to get into other schools and such. Um, these guys, these kids, they're all that that age. And it's really gratifying to know that you've got kids of that age who will respond to the sort of um, adventures I have in mind for them and that will want to come back again. All five of them want to play more. And they were all first time noobs. And I loved it. Really yeah, did. that's great. Um, yeah. Your story yeah. is sounding a lot like what I imagine paid deeming would be like, where it's more like a, you know, like a magician that does like birthday parties and stuff, and you don't, you don't yeah. usually have a consistent gig that you're doing where you have a, you know, a specific group of people, but you have lots of, like yeah, a, a DM club and a birthday party. So, yeah. So, it I, this is something that I, I, I find very odd actually. Um, I've been looking around at other dms because obviously you do a bit of market research you find out wherever the people are charging and things like that mm-hmm. yeah um and i'm definitely i've definitely ended up on the lower end of the scale in terms of what i'm asking for um when i first started doing this i asked my uh, my groups and said to them look what do you think is a fair rate and they came up with a price almost unanimously the whole the whole group um sort of came up with the same number never asked kind of said the same sort of thing which was great and that's what prompted me to put that price out and start advertising for services. But that price, although it's lower than a lot of others you'll find online, didn't attract any interest. And, you know, I'm just being honest there, really, it did, there just wasn't interest. I think the problem was that I forgot to ask the other crucial question. Not only how much you think it's worth, but can you afford to pay it in this climate? Yes. And they, they couldn't. I mean, some people can, but as a group, they can't. Um, and I think it's a really important question to ask for anyone else that's thinking about doing it. You know, you've got to make sure that there are people who are not just able, but also willing to spend that money. Mm. And those not always the same thing. So I had to reduce my prices and such, but I'm looking around at a lot of people coming into it. You know, you go onto there's various networks. You've obviously got role, you've got play. Um, people are advertising on through Facebook and there's, there's all sorts of places you can see people looking for groups. But I find that these, as someone, someone goes on there and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm new to the game. I'm wanting to, 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 to explore it. I want to find a DM to play with. And immediately you've got somewhere between two and 20 DMs going on. They're saying, oh, I can do that. I'm, you know, if you're up for a paid game, get in contact. And it's almost like these people are being bombarded with this as their first experience. Um, I did this for the first couple of people and then realized that this is, this is not a healthy thing for our, for our hobby. This is not how people should, should come and, and encounter this. I, I now support the idea of a paid DM, certainly the amount of work I put into each session. Um, I've got one tonight, I put five hours into. The party was at least six or seven hours I put into. I, I know that I'm not being paid what would be judged even a minimum hourly rate here. But these are things that I can come back to. These are notes I can reuse and again and again later. So I'm happy to put that time in. But I'm seeing people ask for 30, 40 pounds um, 
uh, even an, uh, per, per session per person. And that doesn't seem like an awful lot, perhaps to some people, but certainly with the way economics are here, that's a huge amount. You know, um, if you've got five people, you make 150 quid, quid off a session. That's, to my mind, an awful lot of money. And I do not feel comfortable asking for that sort of money. Uh, you know, for me, that's a good chunk of a week's wages. If you if you were going to be doing even a standard retail job here, you know, right, um, right. after tax, that's that's a huge chunk. Um, so I don't really get how there's so many newer people coming into it that are trying to command these sort of prices. And I do think that it's going to be unhealthy for the lo- in the long term. Um, it might be that these people don't achieve that and they pull back and you don't get this happening too much. But then I'm seeing other people who are established and they're saying, look, we can do a session for 50 quid or something like that. Um, they claim to be getting these prices, whether they're actually achieving it, I don't know. And then they're saying, well, for a corporate group, if you give me £300, I'll run a team building session for you. I know some of the corporates do have that sort of money, but again, in my mind, is it really ethical to to try and say you're worth it? Uh, I know that's a very much a personal perspective thing. But I've been playing this game for, what, 38 years. I consider myself to be a very good DM because I've made the mistakes that I learned from to become a good right, DM. Right. But I'm seeing other people come into it. They've been playing it a couple of years. Oh, I can make my money doing this. And they charge these prices. And the corporations that might come in and say, oh, I'll pay that, will work. We'll go away with what is often going to be a less than stellar um, performance, perhaps. I don't want to. I'm not saying that to denigrate people. Um, I, I expect people to, to have picked up a certain amount of skills. But if you've been playing two or three years, um, even regularly, you're not going to have the experience of someone who's been playing for a lot longer. You're not going to be able to adapt to situations. And I would expect there to be a lower level of detail. And my concern is those people that have been paying that, they're going to go back and say, well, you know what, it's not worth it. Don't do that. And that will affect the whole community. Right. I've, I think I've digressed enough. I'm sorry, I'm eating it your time. That's a personal bugbear. No, no, it's it's interesting. I was just thinking of other other differences, like you said, like with charging a a lower price for the first session kind of makes sense because then people can see if they like it before paying a larger Listen, price for more consistent stuff. Exactly that. I mean, my campaigns, one of them is basically a pay what you want to, which is I'm happy with. Uh, another one I've set a lower price and they're all happy to meet that that's not a problem and I'm doing this because the people that are in this group are people I know uh, and because I know what the economic climate is like it's as much as I think on the other end as a player I would feel comfortable saying yes to Um, and I know that's going to be different everywhere you go I I expect that but it's just something that it's been on my mind for a while now is you know what is an acceptable amount Um, well I was comparing it kind of to like a musician where you're getting like one to two hundred uh dollars or pounds about the same thing uh yeah. per per gig um so if you're charging forty dollars per person that gets up to hundred and sixty for four players um it does yeah i mean that that sounds about like what a, a professional musician would make, and it's a similar kind of entertainment where you're there for you know a few hours and doing your thing and then leaving. Um, I agree so with that. That, that price but doesn't seem is, that. But how long has that professional musician been playing to get to that level? Right. Um, and yeah, usually at least ten years. Plus, yeah, for sure. To be to get to that standard where you can charge that sort of price, uh, and not only that, you must have, you would have been practicing with those individuals for that amount of time for the most part. 
Um, whereas where we're playing our games, uh, a lot of people that are, you know, I, I don't, I'm again, I'm not disparaging anyone who's who's doing this. It's just I'm confused by, um, no, I'm concerned by the amount that uh, people walk away with perhaps an experience that isn't quite what they expected or hoped for. And is this going to sort of bounce back on us ultimately? Yeah. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking of for really making it feel like someone got their money's worth from that experience would be lots of props. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, a friend of mine actually recently um, was very kind and actually gave me a 3D printer. And that's something oh. that I'm aiming to do for things like these birthday parties. It's, it's a very recent thing, so I wasn't able to do it for today. But when I do a birthday party, I want everyone to not just take the character. I want them all to have a model to take away. Um, and it's just little things like that, which for kids is something that they're going to remind them of what they've been doing, the fun they've had, and hopefully they'll want to use that model again. Um, yeah, not just really for me, cool. but anytime they play. I was, I was a little worried when you first started talking and thought you were going to talk about the, the ogre's underpants again for a prop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't want to supply those because I, I think they might fit, mine might fit the ogre, but they're a bit cleaner. <laughs> I hope anyway. <laughs> I, I love I love using texture in games and and smells to really sort of increase people's um, what's the word uh, their immersion. Yes, yes, definitely. So if you can, it's one thing saying describing something visually, but if you can, you add sound, you add sense, you add tastes, add textures. All of a sudden, people realize what you're doing a bit more. Um, yeah, there was one night that I I played where we had we tried to have the same meals that the characters would have, where oh, they lovely. didn't have plates. They were just eating off of like you put a stew onto a piece of bread. Yeah, so, um, that's I think the bread is called a trencher for the name of it. Yes, uh, so that's, we, really that's cool. what we had. We just had a, like uh, we each had like this big loaf of bread, poured some stew on it, and that's what we ate for the night. <laughs> that's fantastic. I like that. And I probably enjoy it as well. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about while we're here? Anything you wish I'd asked you? No, honestly, it's been really nice to actually just have a chat um, to to engage with someone that has the same interest, but obviously might have a different perspective. That's always a good thing. Um, I think I think I spend all day talking about D and D, but I think from my end, that's probably about it. Okay. Um, is there any like piece of advice you want to give to other DMs? Yeah. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. Everyone makes them. And you should never be ashamed when you're starting DMing, especially, to ever to make a mistake and then work, just go with it. It's much better to make those mistakes and learn from them than it is to be afraid of making them and not advance your abilities by, by not risking that. Yeah, um, I'd say that applies to more than just DMing as well, for sure. Oh, gee, you could call that life advice if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great. Thank you for coming on the show, Rick. No, thank you very much. It's been a genuine pleasure. I really like it, Isaac. And um, perhaps in the future, I might, I might enjoy hearing a little bit more about how you play your games and such. 